Hello, I'm Onano Bhattacharya. Welcome to Why, the podcast that finds awe-inspiring answers to baffling questions. Let's fast forward a million years into the future. Assuming that we haven't been wiped out by a rogue artificial intelligence or nuclear war, human beings, if such a species still exists, will probably be so different from us as to be virtually unrecognisable. Homo sapiens have already gone through incredible physiological change. We're less muscular than our ancient ancestors, with smaller jaws, teeth, and even our bones are lighter. And we're taller. In just the past 200 years, the tallest people on Earth, the Dutch, have grown 20 centimetres in height. And though we're probably smarter than our forefathers, our brains have shrunk. Medieval brains were actually bigger than ours. Now, some scientists argue that modern medicine and farming, plus a lack of natural predators, means humans are no longer subject to natural selection. But one thing's for sure, for better or worse, as long as we keep having children, humans will keep evolving. Today on Why, we're asking, what will humans look like in a million years? In many ways, the natural body is probably not going to be the mainstream body. They're going to be the weirdos that actually uh, want to be natural. Dr. Anders Sandberg is Senior Research Fellow at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. So I can foresee that in a few decades, actually getting whatever appearance you want, it's mostly a matter of robotic and nanotechnological surgery, and you can do it in any high street drugstore. One of the best guides is actually the science fiction author H.G. Wells, who actually famously wrote an essay called Man in the Year Million in the late 1800s. In fact, this was kind of a prequel to his book, The Time Machine. And he tried to apply evolutionary theory to humans. Now, when you read this essay, you're not entirely convinced. He's making up a lot of stuff, but he's also making some good educated guesses. So one of his points is that we should expect there to be more of the traits that are good for survival and having kids. And he noted that having a lot of muscles no longer mattered. He was, of course, speaking from the middle of the Industrial Revolution. And today, of course, if you're really good at using social media and smartphones, that might actually mean that you're getting a date and kids much more than having a lot of muscles although that might be good for showing up on Tinder, perhaps. So his prediction about this bald-headed, super-brain, weak future humans that litter science fiction, yeah, it was a guess. He was probably wrong, but he based it on a not-too-shabby kind of reasoning. It's just that we might say, "Mm, maybe having large hands with long fingers is not necessarily the key thing in handling a keyboard. There might be other things that matters for our evolution. Okay, so with the caveat that even our intelligence speculations, we may get them horribly wrong and they may look a little bit outdated. But one thing I think has really changed, hasn't it? In the not so distant past, we didn't know about evolution. We didn't think to exert any kind of conscious control over our own evolution because, you know, evolution didn't exist as a concept. Doesn't that knowledge kind of change everything? 
it can change everything. The interesting part is that we have understood animal breeding for a very long time, but it was relatively recently people realized that, oh, this could be applied to us. And then because of host horrors, we also might have decided culturally in the West that, oh, no, we're never going to apply this. While other cultures might actually say, hey, that could be a good idea. And that shows something interesting. It's kind of up to what we decide how we evolve. Most other species, they're evolving because the environment is. But we are evolving in patterns that are at least to some extent set by social and cultural decisions we make. Yeah, so on that note, what are the sort of key evolutionary trends from the past that you think will be important in shaping the way that we look in the future? So if we go back a million years ago, our ancestors, they had to survive in a rather tough environment. It was important to have a robust body to be able to survive things until you could reach childbearing age. And the food was relatively scarce. And that meant that genes that made us put on fat as soon as we ate a lot of food to store it for lean times were really useful. Today, instead, we get obesity and diabetes from it because we kind of solved the food problem. Today, instead, if we keep on having this materially rich culture, it might be a rather good thing to have genes that don't predispose you towards keeping fat. As long as it's unlikely that there is a famine, you might actually get selection against that. Similarly, being a bit wild and rambunctious as a kid might be good for exploring the environment, but it's risky. And it gets even riskier if you have cars. So right now we're having a bit of a selection against being wild in traffic. A lot of teenagers select against themselves in the gene pool by getting into traffic accidents. However, that might change in the next few decades if we get autonomous cars. Maybe the wild teenagers being wild in the backseat of a car, but the car itself is totally safe. So the tricky thing in predicting this kind of selection is that we change culturally and technologically at a much faster pace than a lot of evolution does. That's kind of strange. I mean, you're talking about trends on a sort of timescale of decades to 100 years and, you know, things just go through swings and roundabouts. These selection pressures are, are changing all the time. Some of the selection pressures are also slightly subtle. For example, there have been a long debate about uh, is there a selection for genes that predispose you towards having a lot of kids? And the genetic studies seem to indicate that, yes, indeed, there are genes that have effect on the number of kids you have. Not just in the sense that some make you sick and you have fewer kids and they're selected against, but there are also some genes that might make people have more kids. Some of them might be linked to uh, behaving rather irresponsibly in the bedroom. Others are social. But the really cool finding these studies have found is that they're different in different cultures, different in different societies. Because the things that might make me the Swede that is good at reproducing a Swedish context might be the wrong kind of personality traits and behaviors in an Italian context. And... This makes it hard to make predictions that, of course, genes that predispose you to have a lot of kids are going to spread widely because there is so many different trade-offs. You talked about the fact that kind of there are different norms in different countries which might affect what we consider beautiful in a partner, for example. But you also mentioned kind of social media. Now, do you see a kind of flattening out 
of these sort of beauty standards as different populations interbreed. I mean, we're much more likely now to find a partner from a different country or, or a different continent. Do you envisage that we will sort of become more homogeneous as a species? I think that is partially true, simply because we are globalized. We are traveling much more widely. Certainly, some people in the Stone Age traveled surprisingly long distances. But generally, the flow of genes across the world was very limited. Now, we're mixing much more, which is probably actually a good idea from a genetic health perspective. And I think it's a very good idea from a kind of more humane and cultural perspective. It's actually a good idea to link our cultures together. The question is, are we going to keep on interbreeding widely? I think that's pretty likely. Once you have airplanes, you're unlikely to want to stop using them. Once you have uh, social media and Tinder and things like that, it's unlikely that we're going to say, oh, it was all a bad idea, let's drop it. Even if we do think that it was a bad idea, it's very hard to drop those things. And they are going to keep on having that effect. We've talked a little bit about the evolutionary drivers from the past, but... Just going forward, what do you think might become new evolutionary drivers that would really shape how we look in future? So the basic thing is that we're getting better abilities to control our appearance and bodies, not just by running filters uh, on Instagram, but uh, that we're actually getting tools for cosmetic surgery, uh, healthcare. And uh, I have been arguing in ethics that we might have a right to modify our bodies, morphological freedom. So I can foresee in the future that people might actually radically change their appearance. Isn't that right necessarily only open to those who can afford it? I mean, how do you see the role of sort of money and wealth playing into our future evolution? Well, traditionally, you use money and wealth to flaunt it to get partners. So there has been this evolutionary drive both for people to find that somewhat appealing, but also, of course, creating this incentive for getting it. But many things that we today take for granted used to be very expensive. Having a car, any car, used to be so expensive that that was a sex symbol. Then you had to have an expensive car. Similarly, uh, having muscles, in the past, everybody had it because they had to work rather hard. So uh, actually being a bit uh, weak might be a sign that, oh, he must be a nobleman. He's uh, not working for a living. That's uh, cool. Then it became, uh, oh. He's not obese. He's going to the gym. He's got six packs abs. That is a sign of willpower and that is able to pay for it. And similarly for many of other things. But as soon as something becomes cheap, it becomes less of a strong signal. A lot of the clothing we have today is really amazingly colorful. That used to be a symbol of wealth. And I think many of the technologies that we might use to modify our bodies that are right now expensive will become much less expensive. So I can foresee that in a few decades, actually getting whatever appearance you want, it's mostly a matter of robotic and nanotechnological surgery, and you can do it in any high street drugstore. At which point, of course, your facial appearance is not going to be that a strong signal. Also, I think that's an important democratizing factor. I think we should really approach this as saying, we want healthcare to be automated so everybody can get it. We want all this fancy stuff that people want also to become cheap. People will have to find other ways of showing off, but it's a good thing to be able to enhance ourselves. And this, of course, in particular goes for genetic modifications, which are very likely to have enormous effects on our future. I kind of almost see 
a race here between the sort of genome editing and and the sort of selection that you're talking about, and then at the same time, this idea of, of us becoming more like cyborgs and implanting technology within ourselves. What do you see as the more important of these factors in terms of how we're going to look? I think you're right that this is going to dominate because it can change much more rapidly. If you do genetic selection for any trait, it takes generations before you get it. While of course, germline engineering, okay, now you just take one generation to have that modification. But by the time the kid that we today gave some extra genes that we believe might be good has grown up, it might very well be that you can get the same thing by some app on your phone or some little implant you can easily get. And I think many of these other technologies can move much faster than the genetic ones. Now, that also means that maybe they also shift back and forth much faster while the genome evolves more slowly. And depending on your views of the future, you might say, well, actually, quite a lot of people don't want to use this fancy stuff. They want to reproduce in a natural, normal way. Right now, if somebody asked me, Anders, would you like a brain implant to work as your smartphone? I would probably decline it, even though I like gadgets, because if my phone is bad, I can get an updated version and buy it relatively cheaply. If I have it implanted in my head, hmm, upgrading that one would be rather tricky. And this goes for a lot of our bodily modifications today, which is, of course, one reason why it's actually a big decision to get a tattoo or a facelift. You're permanently changing something. So I do think that in the future, we're going to be very much cyborgs and biotechnological products of culture. In many ways, the natural body is probably not going to be the mainstream body. They're going to be the weirdos that actually want to be natural, just like there are a few people who are trying to live a really natural life. But most people who say, oh, natural life is good, they rarely move away from their high-paying job in the city and actually till their subsistence farm in the middle of nowhere. They like to visit that farm and imagine themselves tilling it, but then they go back to the city. And I think the same thing is very likely for any advanced civilization. We are going to be kind of having nostalgia about the ancient practices, but we only do them in a Renaissance fair style rather than actually living them. You seem to be sort of imagining a future that's a lot more democratic in a way than I do. You know, you're talking about the fact that, you know, there's a drive towards making this technology cheaper, to making genetic enhancement available to more and more people. I kind of worry it's quite the opposite. You know, we're having wealth concentrated into a, a smaller proportion. And at the same time, technology is accelerating at this incredible rate. I worry if those two things won't come together and actually cause so much drift between the wealthy and, you know, and the rest of us that it's almost results in, in speciation and the wealthy becoming an almost completely different species. What do you think? So that concern has definitely come up in discussions of genetic enhancement. So Lee Silver, in one of his books in the 90s, was talking about the evolution of the genetic haves and have-nots, where the people who could afford it get genetic upgrades and then they become wealthier, while the other ones, they're having to live with the normal human bodies and then you get a speciation. And that's actually even an idea in H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. In the future he visits, the humanity has split between the Eloi living in the gardens of the surface and then the Morlocks hiding underground. The situation is, of course, more complicated even in that novel. But in reality, 
I don't think it's very likely that it's going to stay that much uh, speciation. The reason is your cell phone is probably not much less capable than Elon Musk's cell phone. If you have a normal, decent smartphone, it's probably very on par. It's not like the super rich have special and uh, super rich phones. Maybe they have expensive uh, covers for them, but the basic technology is the same. Right now, when doing this recording, uh, I'm making use of a computer, which is really powerful, using microphone and audio technology, which is really powerful. And a few decades ago, this would have been a very expensive thing. Now, the scary part is services, because if you need to go to some enhancement spot to upgrade your genes, then you need to, in part, pay for the nurses and doctors doing that, and their salaries might not come down. So that might be relatively expensive. So as long as any enhancement and technology is heavily dependent on services, then it might actually be a class marker. So we've heard that the affordability of implants and enhancements will definitely be a factor in how we opt to change our appearance in the future. However, will things go even further? Futurist Ray Kurzweil has long predicted that as soon as 2045, we'll be able to achieve a sort of immortality by uploading our brains to a computer. So what if we leave our bodies behind altogether? That would surely have a huge impact on the way we would look in a million years. That's an interesting possibility. You could argue that we're already kind of doing it when you walk around on town and see everybody with the noses in their smartphones. It almost seems like we are already living in sense in the cyberspace. We just happen to have our bodies walking around and occasionally hitting uh, light poles. But I think brain emulation, it's something I have done research about myself, and I think it's a really interesting, a really useful possibility. It's also, from an evolutionary standpoint, something very odd. If you could scan our brains and reconstruct them in a computer, we would actually leave the animal kingdom and in some sense become part of the mineral kingdom. And it has some really interesting advantages. You can get a backup copy. You can maybe run several parallel copies of yourself. You can run faster if your computer gets faster. You can shut down or slow down if you're on a long trip. You can actually travel by radio or laser transmission. Editing and modifying your mind becomes easier, which is also a scary thing. So you want your computer security to be pretty top-notch. And of course, you can live in whatever virtual reality you build. Also, from a kind of environmental standpoint, if we can actually run this on energy-efficient quantum computers, it looks like the total footprint of humanity could be very small. You can pack in all of humanity in a server farm under the Sahara Desert and build some solar panels on top, and that's it. Now, would people go for this? Well, some nerdy people like me think that this sounds like heaven. The really interesting thing is we might get a speciation here, not just a speciation that humanity splits into different biological species, but even into non-biological species. And if that happens, I think we're going to see many more because we have various software incompatibilities already. We might end up with Android and iPhone people in the future. Similarly, you might imagine these uploaded people quickly diverging because they're running very fast on computers, developing their own cultures and different styles of solving things. Some might be purely virtual. Some might want to download themselves into Android bodies to deal with the physical world. 
at least some of them better do that because somebody needs to control the power supply to the server farm. So the possibilities become much vaster if you go post-biological. And this is, of course, why making detailed predictions about humans in a million years is very hard because we're working very hard on getting rid of our limitations, which means that we could become many more different things. If you take a Neolithic Stone Age tribe anywhere in the world, they are living a relatively similar life. They have slight differences in culture and language, but they have to solve the same problems. They're so constrained by the environment. If you go to an early agricultural Bronze Age society, they are much more variable. They have different religions, different organizations, but they all tend to build pyramids if they can afford it. There are many similarities. Once you get to the Iron Age empires, they become much more diverse because you push back nature. You have more resources to spend on how you do things different. And once you get to the Industrial Age, while we are somewhat similar because of globalization and shared media, we can also afford to be very, very different. So I would expect that if this continues, you might get a tremendous level of diversity tempered by that people also are social creatures and want to understand each other and not stick out too much from the group. So we might see simultaneous convergence and divergence. And this is, of course, making my job as a futurist slightly harder. I can't make a good prediction about what is going on here in one million, but I can point at these big trends and that is pretty likely that we're going to see this diversification. Going back to this idea of uploading ourselves to computers, you know, if enough of us do it, this instinct to reproduce, do you think it will ever fade? You know, even if we, as you put it so brilliantly, if we move from the animal kingdom to the uh, mineral kingdom in this way, are many of us just going to stop reproducing? Because, uh, you know, what's the point? Will that finally bring human evolution to an end? Well, we might still have evolution, but it might not be based on mixing genetic material. And Many people would say, wait a minute, humans are never going to stop sex. We're a sex-obsessed species. Even among mammals, we're kind of thinking about sex way more than many other mammals that at least only do it in part of a year. And the interesting part is, of course, we already demonstrated by inventing contraceptives that we like to take control over our reproduction, separate that from sex. So we're having a lot of opportunities for sex without reproducing. In cyberspace, of course, people might be having endless virtual sex without having any offspring. A normal response to that would be, yeah, but don't we have this instinct? We need to have kids. And some people certainly feel that. But it doesn't seem to be a super strong instinct. If you look at how many kids people actually have in the real world, it's surprisingly affected by economics and situations. In many countries, we're actually reproducing below replacement rate right now. And now, in cyberspace, if you're uploaded, of course, you could just make a copy of yourself. That's not a kid. That's still you, although the other you will diverge. But I can imagine some people saying, actually, we should probably try to come up with a way of making digital kids, both because it might be fun, etc. But also, maybe it's a good idea to add new diversity to humanity. I think a likely result is that we are in the long run, going to grow in population to whatever limits exist in our environment, because at least some people are going to be interested in doing that. The rest of us might be saying, oh, no, virtual sex is good enough. So I think you're going to see reproduction, but maybe more forms of reproduction. Maybe it's not so much that you mix genes to make a kid as you mix minds. Or you might have other methods with arbitrary number of parents or copying where you alter some aspects of your own copy. 
I think people are going to come up with a lot of things here. And conservatives, even the uploaded post-human conservatives are going to be outraged by this and say, this is not the right way of doing it. We should be doing it like we did on my grandfather's time in the early 3000s. So we've ranged across an incredible range of issues here, but I'm going to draw you back to the central question and put you on the spot. So describe, Anders, for me, a typical example of the human species in a million years' time. So here is the funny thing. The typical person, I think, is going to be something virtual existing in software, and it might not look like anything. That's the majority of human-descended beings. But if you go out in the physical world, you find a lot of other people. And I think you're going to notice some things that are odd. Back on Earth, in the nature preserve, you have some people insisting on behaving like the traditional homo sapiens and maybe even taking a point of pride in that, that they're the originals. And we ancient humans would say, yeah, you diverged a bit. You actually don't quite look like we do, just like we don't look like Homo erectus. The genetic drift that naturally happens if you just behave naturally, is going to make them look slightly different from us. But we would probably recognize them as humans. But then you have the weirdos living the space stations and the other part. Okay, they modified the bodies. Many of them modify the body every morning to look cool. So I think what we're going to see is that we build on top of things. It's not so much that we remove things as we add stuff. So I think we might be rather amused by finding that those post-humans of the year one million using a lot of stuff that we use, but for different purposes. They're going to have clothing to signal various things. They're going to be using their faces. Maybe their biology is mostly based on nanomachines rather than cells. But they still might want to have two arms and gesticulate because that is the way a lot of people signal. Sure, over in your own subculture, you quickly grow your extra tentacles and do the sign language that actually makes sense. But you can't talk to your grandmother that way. Currently, researchers use trends in our evolutionary history to help predict how we'll look in a million years. However, in the past, evolution was something that happened to us. But now, and in the future, our scientific and technological knowledge puts us in the driving seat. Fundamentally, though, humans are social animals with needs and desires that reach back through time. And that won't change. That's all from us today on Why. Thank you to Dr. Anders Sandberg. Thank you. We'll be back soon with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Onano Bhattacharya asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Onano Bhattacharya. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.